I will wait for you. I will wait for you. I will wait for you until my soul is satisfied. Lord, we come before you as your people at your invitation. We open up the word that you've given to us and we pray that by your spirit you would equip us now to learn what that means to wait for you until our soul is satisfied. We pray this with expectancy in the name of Jesus, our King. And God's people together said, Amen. Well, greetings to the beloved Covenant family. Welcome to our, all of our online friends all around the globe. And kiddos, good morning. I love and miss you. Hi to all of you. Hey kids, have you ever thought about the fact that sometime not too long from now, you're going to start to learn how to drive a car? Have you thought about what that's going to be like? I remember when I first started learning how to drive a car, that felt so scary. But pretty soon, it ended up being a lot of fun. But let me tell you one of the weirdest things about learning how to drive a car. It's this thing. This is a rear view mirror. So you might get the impression from watching your brothers or sisters drive the car, or maybe your mom or your dad, that the reason you have a mirror in the car is so you can turn it towards you and check to make sure your, your hair is straight or you don't have anything in your teeth or you don't have any zits or your makeup is properly touched up. But that's not actually the reason we have a mirror in a car. And um, I'm guessing that you have noticed this, but it's actually rather hard to drive a car down the street when you are looking at yourself all the time. I think we're all discovering that the same thing is true in the Christian life. I think that's part of why people are a bit more grumpy these days and coming to the end of themselves and, and a bit out of sorts. For the last four months, the one main message we've been getting through all of this is think about yourself, think about yourself, think about your toilet paper and your, and your hand sanitizer and think about your, uh, your safety and your health and your social distancing. It's exhausting to go through life just thinking about yourself all the time. Well, anyway, when you're learning how to drive, especially with all of the potential problems that are right in front of you when you're driving, it's tempting to think you should just keep your eyes on the road right in front of you. But it turns out knowing what's going on behind you is also really important. So what that means is while your car is flying down the road and people are, are speeding up and slowing down in front of you and changing lanes and you're trying to figure out where you're supposed to turn, at the same time, in the middle all of, that, of all of that, you're supposed to find moments often when you can glance in the rearview mirror and see what's going on behind you. So that's what this sermon is about. It's about moving forward well by looking back often. On reflection, I guess you could say this is a sermon on mirror Christianity. Well, 
So to guide us in our work this morning, we are going to be focusing on Psalm 77. That may not just immediately come to your mind. Oh yeah, Psalm 7, which Psalm is that? But it's a beautiful Psalm and it's a really honest one. And I think it's a great place for us to spend our time this morning. So if you've got a Bible nearby, I encourage you to open it up to Psalm 77 because we're going to be spending our time just walking through it. You'll see as we go through this that there are four different sections to this psalm. And we're going to walk through each of those. And then at the end of each part, we're actually going to just pause for 20 or 30 seconds and pray in response to the portion of the psalm that we've just read. So first of all, part one, seeking God, verses one to four. So the passage starts off with a psalmist in the middle of some really challenging but unidentified struggle. So before we go any further, let me just ask you this question. What burden have you carried with you into worship this morning? What is pressing with its weight on your heart? Maybe your graduate studies have just been put on hold, or the job market has completely dried up, or your visa has expired, or your savings account is disappearing. Maybe you're feeling the frustration of one school year having ended in a really awkward and strange way and another school year right around the corner starting up in an equally strange way. Maybe as a result of COVID, you have been forced into isolation from your friends and your loved ones. Or maybe the virus has caused your work to change in a way that you find disappointing or frustrating, or of concern. Maybe you're looking at the direction that things are going in our country and you're feeling real fear for the future and dreading the election and its results coming up in the fall. Maybe the divisions in the nation and the unrest in our streets have bred divisions among your family or your friends and unrest in your own soul. Or maybe you're just sick of it all and it's all catching up with you and you feel like you're just kind of coming to the end of your resources and looking at, when's this ever going to end? Well, from the middle of his anguish, whatever it was, the psalmist reaches out for God. I cried out, I cried out. Beginning in verse one, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, but my soul refused to be comforted. (laughs) I think if we're honest, we would like this to be a three-verse psalm, and really every psalm to be a three-verse psalm, that goes like this. I cried out to God for help. In his compassion, he reached down from on high, just like he always does, and he delivered me once again, And my soul will sing the praises of the Lord Most High because he always hears my cry. But that's not how the psalm goes. He doesn't say that. He keeps crying out to God night and day and nothing seems to change. Verse 2, when I was in distress, literally, it says, in the day of distress I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hands, but my soul refused to be comforted. Turning to God isn't working. Things aren't changing. But still, he keeps seeking God. Verse 3, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. 
I was too troubled to speak. I thought about you, I meditated on you, but the thought of God doesn't bring relief to my circumstances. You don't make them go away. So notice those last two lines. You kept my eyes from closing. Literally, it says, you grabbed onto my eyelids. Look what happens here. The psalmist is beginning to move from being frustrated with his circumstances that are causing him to lose sleep to beginning to blame God for keeping him awake. And the result, not peace, not rest. But he gets to the point where he is so troubled he can't say another word. And you can imagine how bewildered he is. I did everything right. I turned to God. I was having my quiet times. I was going to church. I was reading the Bible. I was praying. But my spirit, instead of becoming more full, just kept feeling more faint. I continued to feel so disturbed, so troubled in my soul, I got to the point where there wasn't anything left to say to God. So let me just pause here with you. With things so unpredictable right now, what anxiousness or fear or despair do you find rising up in you? What threat of illness or death troubles you? What anxiety haunts you? What inner turbulence are you feeling? Even if you've already been doing so, even if you've given up doing so, even if it doesn't feel like it's making any difference, just take a moment now to follow the example of the psalmist and let's express those things to God together in silence. Now the psalmist steps back from seeking God and he starts thinking about his experience of God. Verse five, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night, my heart meditated and my spirit inquired. We're told that this psalm was written by Asaph who was a Levite who led the singing in the tabernacle while David was the king of Israel. We're told that he wrote almost a dozen songs, including Psalms 73 through Psalm 83. So he starts thinking at this point, you know, this doesn't, just doesn't all add up. I sought you, I worshiped you, I wrote these psalms that I sang to you in the middle of the night, but nothing changes. What difference is it making? My spirit inquired, it says in verse six, means he was really wrestling to fit the pieces together. I searched carefully, I inquired deeply, I really struggled with this, but it's interesting to notice that God isn't mentioned in either of these verses. Now he has turned from looking out the windshield to using his rear view mirror to look at himself, at his own struggles, his own feelings, his own disappointments, and that's never a very good idea. Asaph says, well now, how in the world do I square what was promised from the reality that I experienced? After all, this is what God said about himself when he revealed himself to Moses. The Lord walks before Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But where is the evidence of that now? 
I look at my circumstances and I don't see any of those things. What I see looks like life out of control and I don't see God anywhere in the picture. The virus is still spreading. Groups are still fighting. People are still dying. Where is God in that? So what follows then is a tumble of painful questions about God, not to God, which is interesting. And then a terrible conclusion. Verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has the promise, has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? Are those questions that you find yourself asking these days? It is difficult to fit together God's promises to love us and show compassion and mercy on us with some of the difficult and unrelenting circumstances that we face. What are the questions that you find yourself raising about God these days? Frankly, one of the really startling things about the Psalms is that they express such scathingly honest questions about God. The fact that God gave us these words, the fact that the Psalms are inspired by God right along with the rest of Scripture, means that God welcomes us coming directly to him with the hardest and most uncomfortable questions we have. Just like these five questions with which James Gilmore begins his summer psalm. This is my summer psalm. Where are you, my God, my King and my Majesty, the one who created the skies, the land, and the sea? Have you forgotten us? Can you not hear? We are crying out to you in our pain and our fear. Where is your peace? Where is your rest? I can't feel my heart. It has died in my chest. You can catch the rest of that great psalm on our Covenant uh, Facebook page and also a number of psalms that others have written as part of our Covenant Psalm Project. Thanks, James. So what questions have come to your mind about what God is doing right now? What do you find yourself wondering or, or fearing about God's love and his presence and his care during these corona days? So God reminds us through the Psalms that we can bring those questions to him anytime. So let's do that right now. Let's ask God our questions in silence. After these six hard questions comes Asaph's stark and painful conclusion. Verse 10, Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. Now, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like such a terrible conclusion. Sometimes because Hebrew is so terse, and it says so much with so little, and also because there are a number of ancient Hebrew words that we um, only see used one or two times, so we can't be sure about the exact range of meaning of those words. Sometimes it can be a bit uncertain. 
uh, the best way to translate a passage in the Old Testament. So the direction the NIV takes and the ESV takes with it is to read this as a positive affirmation, but virtually every other translation takes this the other direction and, and gives us some version like what the New American Standard has of this translation, which is very different in tone. This is what it says. Then I said, it is my grief. Literally, I am pierced with grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. So what does that mean? The right hand of the Most High has changed. Well, think about this. Remember that all through the book of Exodus, it is God's strong right hand that fights against Pharaoh and that frees the people of God and that leads them out into to the promised land. Like 20 different times in the first 15 chapters of Exodus, it talks about the right hand of God or the right arm of God. One example, Exodus 13, 14, say to your son, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So when Asaph is concluding that God's hand has changed, then what he means is either that the hand of God has lost its power to help God's people, or worse, that the heart of God that guides the hand of God on behalf of the people of God has lost its regard, has lost its care. That God has become indifferent to his people and their plight. Here's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse. Just my luck. The high God goes out of business just the moment I need him. The second section ends with this bleak conclusion forming in Asaph's mind that God isn't to be trusted anymore. We just can't count on him. Part three, remembering God, verses 11 to 15. Now comes the rear view mirror moment. Look at what happens when we go from verse 10 to verse 11. Asaph says, I was looking at this mess out of my front windshield, and wondering where in the world God was, and God nudged me to take just a moment to glance in my rearview mirror. God shifted my gaze from what I thought he should be doing now in the present to what he actually has done again and again and again in the past. The shift is so stark that it's like Asaph didn't even have time to complete his thought before God brought him a different perspective. Then, even as I was concluding, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed, I will remember. I will remember. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on your works. I will consider all your mighty deeds. In verses 11 and 12, he remembers what sort of things God does. And then in verses 13 and 14, he remembers what sort of God God is. And notice the present tense in all of these verbs. These things are true of God right now, even in this thing in which I find myself. 13, your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Now, I think the comment here in verse 13 about other gods is instructive. I think it implies that Asaph actually began to consider other alternatives to God in his disappointment with God, just as all of our hearts are prone to do. 
God made us as worshiping beings. You know that. And we are always looking for an object for our worship. We're always looking for some place to put the weight of our hopes and our desires. Some place to find peace and security for our souls. So if God isn't cutting it, well then, I'm going to turn and find something or someone else who can meet my needs. So what are the gods that you are prone to or maybe already have begun to turn to when you feel like God has disappointed you? My job, my kids, my bank account, my health, my alma mater, my connections, my abilities, my prescription drugs, my hidden websites, my alcohol, my media binges, my... But look at the clarity that suddenly comes from looking in the rearview mirror. Those false gods, they're worthless. What God is so great as the Lord? Look at the sort of things you do. Look at the sort of God you are. Verse 15, with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. So if we slow down enough in our anxious fretting to stop our vision from shaking, every one of us can look in the rear view mirror and see a whole line of evidence of the goodness of God. Our lives stuffed to the rafters with his deeds, his ways, his miracles, his displays. So take a moment now in silence and allow God to begin to call to mind some of the ways that he has met you in hard times in the past. How did he provide for you in those hardships? How has he worked for good in unexpected ways? How did he use those difficulties to draw you nearer? Let's practice remembering. last section of the psalm, Asaph is seeing God, verses 16 to 20. He focuses in, in this section, on one specific act of God, the time that he led his people out of slavery and into freedom. And he focuses specifically on the, the very worst of moments. The moment when God's people were facing Pharaoh's army, which was invincible and overwhelming, so they were terrified of them, and they were backed up against the Red Sea, which was equally terrifying to them because they understood the deep water as the abyss of evil and death. So it was a hopeless situation. There was no place for them to go. They were sunk, literally. And then in that dire moment, the waters saw you. The waters saw you. Verse 16, the waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your voice of thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. 
You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So two important things I want you to notice about this last section. Notice first, God's powerful intervention on behalf of his people as they cross the Red Sea is described in terms of thunder and lightning and wind and rain, even though only the wind features in the Exodus account. That's not a coincidence. This takes us back to verse 13. What God is as great as our God? Seth, the desert God, the most powerful God of Egypt, the land that they were leaving, was the God of the wind and the storm and the rain. And Baal, the highest of the Canaanite gods, the land that they were now entering, was the storm god, the god of rain and thunder and lightning. But the one true God, the creator God, Yahweh, calls his creation to obedience, and the wind writhes and the water convulses and the earth trembles, rushing to obey their creator. God is not just the God after the storm clears. He is the God over the storm. That leads to the second thing that I want you to notice. Notice the profoundly personal presence and involvement of God right in the midst of this crisis. Verse 16, the waters saw you. God isn't just the God over the storm. God is the God in the midst of the storm. He makes a way through it. Verse 16 or verse 19, your path, your way, making a way where there wasn't a way and he himself is with us in it. Verse 18, your voice whispering to us in the wind, speaking to our fear. Verse 19, your footprints walking before us in the chaos. Verse 20, your hand guiding us through the darkness. He speaks in the storm, though not all hear his voice. He makes a path, though not all recognize his footprints. He takes us by the hand and he leads us, though not all recognize his hand. It is through faith that we are able to see and hear God. And that's why the rear view mirror becomes so important in the life of faith. It reminds us how to view our present circumstances, or more accurately, it reminds us how to look and listen for God in our present circumstances. At the beginning of the psalm, this psalmist is crying out with his voice and reaching out his hands, seemingly to empty space. But now at the end of the psalm, God is speaking to the people with his voice. And he is reaching out his hand. Rob Iman's psalm for the Covenant Psalm Project captures this turn and fresh perspective perfectly. I look back and you were there. I look around, and you are there. So as we conclude this message, let's just take one more moment to pause. In quiet, this time to reflect on the very specific moment of your rescue from slavery to sin into the freedom of faith. How Jesus came on a rescue mission to, to seek you out and to find you and to save you. How he died in your place. And how with your hand in his, he rose from the dead, raising you up with him. Take a moment to marvel at God's rescue of you. And to reflect on how that same God who reconciled you to himself is present and at work in whatever it is you face now. Jesus is still, right now, the way, 
the truth, and the life. And as we come into this silence, if you have never given your life in faith to Christ, I invite you to do that right now. Become his follower. Give him your allegiance. Receive his gift of forgiveness and of reconciliation with God and of eternal life that begins right in this moment. So let's spend a moment now marveling at our rescue, remembering that the same God who is at work in the storm of our life then, speaking to you, taking you by the hand, and leading you is present and at work in the storm today.